This episode of All Things Climbing is presented by Rhino Skin Solutions. If you've been working hard through the winter and spring to get ready for your summer objectives, you need to make sure your skin doesn't betray you at the last possible minute with a trip-ending blister or flapper. No matter what style of climbing you do, Rhino Skin makes the best products out there for what might be the most important aspect of climbing you've never thought about. Keeping your skin healthy, pain-free, and in the right condition to cash in on all your hard work, beers skipped, and desserts uneaten. Generally, when I'm underperforming on a pitch and find myself hanging at the end of the rope, I feel all of a sudden both fatter and slipperier than when I left the ground. Rhino tells me they can't help me with the former problem, but they've got me covered on the latter with an antiperspirant spray aptly named Dry, or their even stronger Tip Juice, which is the nuclear option for controlling perspiration on your pads. They've even got a non-greasy aloe-based spray to promote moisture retention and skin elasticity for climbers whose skin is way too dry. Personally, the Colorado summers have sweat pouring off me like rain, but I'm told this is an actual problem that real people have. Furthermore, Rhino Skin does us all a solid by working hard to protect the future of the activity we all love. Founder and owner Justin Brown sits on the board of the Smith Rock Group, an organization that fundraises, organizes, and executes maintenance efforts throughout the iconic park. Meanwhile, here at All Things Climbing, we're donating all of the proceeds from the show after our production costs, which is to say 100% of my share and Blister's share, to the Access Fund and the American Safe Climbing Association. To give that effort a boost, Rhino Skin set up promo code BLISTER for you to use at checkout. This not only gets you 10% off your order, but Rhino will also donate an additional 10% to the Access Fund. High precision skincare is their forte, but Rhino Skin also means business when it comes to supporting their community. So scope them out over at rhinoskinsolutions.com, use promo code BLISTER when you check out, and feel good about supporting the Access Fund in the process. Are you chopping lines in the background? No, no. Are you picking up some? Uh, <laughs> I am. I sh you, sh you should know. I am drinking a beer in your honor, though. But oh, but but good. no lines today. I'm drinking beer in my honor too. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Honor. Cheers, John. <laughs> hey everyone, this is All Things Climbing. I'm Dave Alley. This week we're talking with legendary bouldering pioneer John Sherman. In the years immediately following the free climbing revolution of the 1970s. John became widely known for his strengths as a climber, as well as for his sense of humor and willingness to heckle other climbers found to be in violation of the strict no-hangdogging ethic of the day. The cutting-edge climbers of this era were turning their attention to free climbing rather than aid climbing and improving ethical standards by insisting on clean, removable protection wherever possible. These are familiar notions to us today, and in many ways modern climbing has its roots in this era. There are, however, major differences both in style and equipment that divide the modern experience from the climbing world of the 1970s and 80s. After all, that was a world when routes were climbed ground up, ropes were only used to lower you back down if you fell, inspecting moves and rehearsing routes was forbidden, and bouldering pads hadn't yet been adopted. Despite being deeply ingrained in the climbing scene in the era of the Stonemasters, John's most enduring contributions have been in the world of bouldering. Over a long and relentless career, John has authored innumerable boulder problems across the country and logged early repeats of many of the most notorious problems of his day, including the iconic Midnight Lightning and John Gill's masterpiece The Thimble in South Dakota. He's also credited as a driving force in the development of Waco Tanks as a climbing zone and is the inventor of the V-scale to grade bouldering problems. More recently, John has made a name for himself as a wildlife photographer, having built an impressive portfolio from his home in northern Arizona. In the course of this work, he's become a passionate advocate for the critically endangered California condor. In previous episodes of the show, I've mentioned that I'm donating 100% of the show's proceeds to the Access Fund and the American Safe Climbing Association. In our conversation prior to the interview, John asked that the portion from this episode go to the Peregrine Fund to help protect the condors, 
which are threatened by habitat loss and severe lead poisoning from hunting ammunition left in carcasses that are eaten by the birds. I admire John's devotion to conservation as much as his contributions to climbing, and so for today's episode, Luke and I are donating not just the proceeds, but an additional $100 to the Peregrine Fund. If you're able to, I encourage you to donate as well. It's an extremely urgent and worthy cause. John and I caught up about what has changed in climbing since his day, how the irreverent Sherman the Vermin is received in the decidedly less counterculture world of high-end photography, and why he thinks there are more impressive feats out there than Alex Honnold's recent free solo of El Cap. Take a listen. I don't know if you want to disagree with this, but I, I would guess that your your legacy in terms of what you're most known for will be all the first ascents that you put up, including all the development you did at Waco and then the V system. But regard, you know, beyond like the, the grading system and the boulder problems themselves, do you do you have a sense of like what your legacy or your impact on the sport is? Like, do you feel like you shaped the type of problem that people go out and seek out or the way in which things are climbed? Um, well, when you talk about all this, I, I kind of think, well, maybe I'm known as that guy who developed Waco or whatever, but I think more people know me as that idiot on the rock drinking a beer with the flip-flops. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, you know, the, uh, I try not to worry about my legacy. Uh-huh. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Just have to take care of itself. We don't, I mean, you know, we don't get to write it. it right. In general, you know, goodness, look at the climbers who fall to their deaths. Yeah. And they have stunning careers up to that point. But most likely they're going to be known for how they screwed up that day they died. Mm-hmm. You know, is that fair? No. Yeah. You know, it's ignoring everything else. And how many times have we all slipped climbing and fallen on something move where we thought we shouldn't have fallen? But fortunately, the rope was there to save us or that, uh, you know, that rock came falling down from above on the cliff and it hit the trail right in front of your feet, but it didn't take you out. I mean, you know, I mean, this stuff happens a lot. You know, yeah. should you be known for the person who walked in the wrong place at the wrong time? Well, it happened. Yeah. That's true. So, well, I guess yeah. I guess maybe uh, maybe to turn that question inside out, what do you what would you most be afraid of your legacy being? Like, is there anything that you're really like, <laughs> oh god, I hope I'm not remembered for this? Oh, right, being what it is, <laughs> got to suck the soul out of the sport with a damn <laughs> reading system that people spend their lives trying to you know, collect these numbers and they miss out <laughs> on what's real in life you know yeah. it's like uh you know i'm sure the person who invented money thought it was going to be a great thing when they did it they didn't realize that people were going to spend their entire lives trying to amass more than they could ever spend yeah so the v grade sucked the soul out of the sport biggest mistake i ever made do you serious um, do you believe that I, I don't blame myself i blame my publisher because the original waco guy wasn't going to have any grades in it and then he said at the last minute oh we'll never sell this if you don't put grades on these huh. so i went back and climbed all the problems except for one in the first book and put grades on them and that's how that shit started so anyway that's <laughs> all i'm talking about you know the numbers don't mean jack shit and unfortunately a lot of people put a huge amount of emphasis on it. And probably more so than ever in the, in the sport of climbing now that uh, indoor climbing is so popular because you can't just say, oh, you know, I mean, there's no Astro Man of 
Jim climbs. There's no <laughs> nose in a day of Jim climbs. There's no midnight lightning of Jim climbs. You know, it's like uh, just the climbs wait. go up one, you know, one month, they're down the next month. So yeah. all you can cling to is the number and say, well, I'm a 513 climber. Yeah. You know, it's like, whatever, you did one 513 in the gym. Now let's see you lead Nutcracker. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. Or like generator crack. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> um, I think uh, one of the things that I was uh, I was a major cultural component to climbing before my time, but I it's like I almost like wish it was still around. Is like sandbagging the culture of like friendly joking sandbagging. I mean, that's something that I don't. It's so it's considered like full like wholesale irresponsible now, and. Um, and I don't know. I mean, maybe that's wrong. Maybe people don't feel that way, but it's certainly not. It's not a culture that can seems like it can survive in the in the larger group outside of well, where maybe, you all know each other. Well, maybe it's just that people aren't good at it anymore. So here's some tips. Yeah, talk. Okay, to me. this is what I'm after you here. You you okay? When you you can't just sandbag on every route, <laughs> you know, because then people are going to know you're consistently undergrading. Mm, you know, mm, like mm. backer. He was a horrible sandbagger because every time anybody heard he said 11B, you knew it was 12A. And it was consistent. So you could make the mental calculation in your head and go up there and go, oh, God, it's a backer 11B, you know. And then you'd be ready for a 512 battle, yeah. you know. What you need to do is you need to rate accurately, I want to say about 70% of the time. <laughs> okay. 15% of the time, complete gives. You know, it's yeah. like you call you, you call it eleven D, but you know it's eleven A. People are gonna <laughs> love you for that. They want to do more of your routes because they're going to make them feel good about the. Oh, I just did eleven D. It like eleven A. But yes. then when you want to sandbag them, you turn around and then you say eleven A when it's actually twelve B, and then they're not expecting it. They don't see it coming, and then boom, the sandbag hits them right in the you know where. <laughs> that's how you do it. And it's just like, that's a lost art these days. People it is. just don't know how to sandbag anymore. Oh, it is. And, and, and this whole thing about, oh, yeah, you got it, dude. Go for it. Go for it. Oh, you know, ah, there's nothing that can get me up a problem less than hearing that. Now, somebody's back <laughs> behind me saying, like, would you get off, fuck off of that problem? You're embarrassing the whole sport being up there and you're greasing up the holds for the rest of us, you know. <laughs> Then just out and out shame. And that's going to get me up the clock. Yeah. The, the <laughs> yeah. whole concept of positive heckling mm. has just disappeared from the sport. I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. Um, Too much carrot, not enough stick these days. That is important to the climbing world. I think this is it. Just <laughs> maybe that's maybe that's the lost legacy of your era for sure. Do you harbor or have you had a hard time getting past resentment towards crowding at places that you were a pioneer at or, you know, the way that the ethics have changed? I mean, is it is it hard to not be like, man, screw you guys. This is like, I, you know, I, this sport has been kind of ruined for me and I don't hit, see my place in it anymore or. Um, no. <laughs> hate to disappoint you with that answer, but I know plenty of places where I can go and get away from this. Yeah, that's fair. Like when I was in, in Bishop last time, I was saying there was 300 cars at the Peabody's. Right. I went to another area I knew that is every bit as good as the Peabody's, and I'm not going to tell people what it is. <laughs> I had the whole place to myself. Yeah. It's actually better than the Peabody's now because 
but the landings aren't all pounded down. It's like the Peabody's were back in the mid seventies mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. there is a, a ton of pea gravel at the base of every problem. So it was like having a pad back then without having a pad, you know, the, the big problem being that every time you landed, you had to take your shoes off and empty all the gravel out of them because you sunk so deep into the, into the <laughs> you know, that decomposed granite at the base. But all that's been pushed away and packed down and stuff like that to now where, uh, you know, you know the T-Buddies is, it's not, it's not the same. Yeah. still beautiful. The problems are still great. The, the scene is way different and, uh, well, that's just yeah. what I mean. I mean, you there's, go to this new area. I can find it elsewhere. But do you, you know? Do you feel like that's you know? I think that's exactly the right approach. But you know, are is it hard not to be like, man, I can't believe I'm being driven out of the Peabody's to this other area? Or are you like, well, these these idiots are stupid for congregating in this area when there's these other good places, so I'm going to go have my own fun? Or, eh, you know, I'm I might have 15 years left. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I mean, Brimwell just died. He's 15 years older than me. You know, I mean, if I look at it that way and I've got 15 years left, I don't want to spend that time worrying about how many people are in Peabody's. I'll just go to where I want to climb. Right. You know? Yeah. I mean, that circles back to taking it all too seriously, I suppose. Yeah. I, I, you know, like I say, if you, you know, if you really wanted to get me riled up, you should have interviewed me 20, 25 years ago. <laughs> yeah. I would have given you what you wanted because yeah. I, Pissed no, I'm certainly not. I'm like almost the opposite of trying to get you riled up. I'm more admiring of your ability to take that perspective because I find it difficult. I mean, I think it's a natural thing for people to get into something, feel passionately about it, and then kind of without realizing it, want to just raise the drawbridge behind them. And they mm. really resent the people who come in and, you know, are are crowding. And it's that whole idea of like, well, everybody hates traffic, but guess what? You are traffic. You know, if you're driving, you are a car on the road, you know, and mm. that's sort of the way it is with climbing. I guess, you know, it's, it's a little bit hypocritical, I think, to go to a crowded crag and be like, ah, I can't believe these people are here. The biggest problem that I think we have now in the sport is how many people are getting into it and how unprepared our land managers are. Yes. And the land just in general to absorb a lot of people who learn in the gym and then decide that they want to try climbing outside. Um, uh, when I started, there was no such thing as a climbing gym. We started outside and many of us already had some, you know, foundation of, of camping and backpacking or whatever. Maybe we we're in a Boy Scouts or something, you know, and well, maybe we got kicked out of Boy Scouts. But that's <laughs> anyway, um, but, uh, you know, that outdoor ethic isn't there. Yeah. And that's a big problem because it causes access issues in the outdoor areas. And what we need is we need more outdoor areas opening up and getting developed, not more getting closed. Mm-hmm. And that I feel is big growing pain I see occurring now. Mm-hmm. And that's part of a problem. And I think you even mentioned that in, in your email to me about, uh, you know, uh, climbers being able to manage themselves. Yes. Say in the sport. And I feel that we're, that, 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 that book sailed already. And yeah, fair enough. The, the climbing community is too large now to where, you know, when I started, yes, we, man, we could manage ourselves because we all knew each other. And if somebody stepped out of line, say they were hangdogging on a track climb in Yosemite, <laughs> well, there'd be a bunch of us at the base screen, fucking hang dog, get down from there. Get off that climb. Let somebody who knows how to climb do it. You know, 
should be all yeah. over the fucking case. And, and, you know, that kind of peer group pressure kept things in line in a very Royal Robin-esque kind of fashion, I mm. guess you could say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Pre- like pre-social uh, media tar and feathered kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And now... What are we going to do? Are we going to use social media to keep us in line? Well, that didn't work too well for the election, did it? You know? It hasn't worked I too mean, well for much, to be honest. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, you can, uh, you know, I, I when I was going to school in Boulder, you know, when I went to college, God, I mean, it was an incredible time in Boulder with so many, you know, top climbers living there at the time, you know, Mark Wilford, he was my roommate in my freshman year, you know, Harrison Decker's there, Christian Griffith, Rob Slater, you know, you name it, just, you know, one after another, Skip Guerin, there's you know, this amazing amount of talent. Yeah. Uh, there, we all knew each other and we all knew what, what each other was doing. And, you know, if we felt, you know, Hey, maybe you should do that better. <laughs> I didn't like what sure. you did. We each other know. I think, um, you know, what you were just getting at is something that I think about a ton, and that is, you know, also really central to why we were motivated to start this podcast. But I feel as though what climbing risks or is risking losing is the medium for having the types of conversations that, I, you know, I think climbing used to not struggle with. Like you were saying before, you guys would it be, you had a way to hash this out. There were mechanisms to try to agree upon standards or ethics of practice and I just don't know, well, you know yeah, do we have I, that I, anymore? There's, there's the famous, you know, uh, fist fights in, in uh, Yosemite, right. you know, Chapman sucker punching backer and blah, blah, blah. But at least you were in the same place and you could throw some fists and have it all over with as opposed to, you know, people throwing metaphorical punches over the Internet anonymously. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> not like they would when they're standing in front of somebody else who might just clock them back. Yeah, for uh, sure. And that, and that is why I feel like, yeah, we are losing that ability in the climbing world. You should be worried about it. I'm glad you're discussing these issues because, uh, you know, maybe, maybe some solution will come out of it. I wish I had the answer for you, but uh, you know, it's, I, I mean, my answer is to punch them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Well, you know, to be fair, I think that's an effective answer. You know, it's, um, I think it is part of it that we, you know, the internet is, is obviously a very, a very special place and we're not having the, our most high-minded dialogue in the internet, but it's more, it's more than that. Right. And I think, I think part of it is that if, as the sport grows, like there used to be, a, a more cohesive culture, right? There was this irreverence to climbing or which is, you know, I guess take it or leave it and all this stuff. But for example, like outdoor management, stewardship, environmentalism, all those things were, were really core to the climber identity. And, and as climbing becomes more of like the, the new CrossFit and it's just a gym, um, exercise thing, which is fine. I have no problem. I should state, I have no problem with that, but I do think that as be- that becomes more and more of a thing, you know, and climbing loses its like John Muirness, or you know, like the yeah. the pairing of camping and climbing, and you know, like things that I consider to be sort of inseparable, but maybe a lot of new climbers don't. Um, you know, I just I worry that something like it really core is going to be lost there. But well, stop worrying; it's already gone. Yeah, 
you know uh, i mean and you know that's true it's like all of a sudden yeah we have people who all already don't ever go outside yeah and they they make it in the, the pages of the climbing magazines you know yeah um the and then like i say my my greatest hope for the olympics is that hey maybe it is a hit and maybe people realize that if you climb outdoors you reduce your chances of ever becoming an olympic athlete therefore <laughs> if you want to aspire toward that end of the sport yeah you need to stay indoors yeah just hang in a hangboard and, and and besides for the people out there listening who have never climbed outside before let me tell you how bad it sucks i mean it's <laughs> mosquito. there's mosquitoes everywhere and the bites hurt they really itch like hell and they carry disease it's diseases <laughs> you don't want to get from a mosquito maybe from a hooker somewhere but not a mosquito <laughs> right and you know sunburn i mean that's their loose rock you have to hike to the climbs with a backpack on and all your gear in them. It yeah. sucks. It's so, true. Yeah. It's pretty so, brutal. And I, you know, climbing gyms with air conditioning and, you know, well, some of them got bad music, but yeah, you know, that's you know, a forgivable sin. Bring, bring your iPod. You can fix that. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so I, I have, um, just, I guess like one, one last question about what we were talking about before I really want to get into some of the photography stuff that, uh, that you do. But, um, one of the things that I was wondering is, you know, when you look at the state of the sport, you seem to be fairly, uh, at a, in a place of peace about how a lot of this, these ships have, have sailed, but you know, do you, do you look around and, and see something that was prominent in your day in terms of like a practice or an ethic that you really wish had become canon, but maybe we've lost along the way? Mm. <laughs> well, you, you hit the nail on the head when you say I don't feel all that, uh, you know, appear all that concerned about it. But I'll tell you why that is, is that I spent my life searching for new climbing areas and stuff. And I have an entire list of ones I've found that I haven't developed yet and nobody has. So I can always go have the experience I want. You know, if we had had this conversation 20 years ago, oh, it would have been a different me talking. I would have been up in arms about how everything was going to hell in a handbasket. But that was several generations of climbing ago, okay? You know, there was kind of the golden age of Yosemite, uh, age, you know, the chinards and robins and whatnot and they were followed up by bridwell rest in peace jim mm-hmm. uh, and closely following bridwell were the stone masters and now the stone masters all you know and i've climbed with a lot of them and they're they're a couple years older than me but you know five at most sort of thing um so i'm kind of coming on the tail of that generation but when trad climbing was at its peak hard free climbing in traditional style and when i say traditional style i don't mean you wrap down from above and pre-place you know clean gear no i mean you start from the ground you climb up with the entire racket gear on your shoulder and you place it as you go you clip it and if you fall you lower so that was a glorious time a lot of us you know agreed upon that and stuff and then on the heels of that came the sport climbers, and yes, the sky was falling then. You know, the Christian Griffiths of the world just wanted to strangle them. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, they they were you know just pissing on everything we believed and whatnot. But then, you know, we felt that they were cheating. Well, then the generation after them comes along and does something that they think is cheating, 
And then when you see them get all pissed off because people don't sport climb like they used to, then all of a sudden you're free. So really, it, there's this one generation gap that occurs where, yes, if you were not the current generation, just the one behind it, you're probably pissed off that the current generation isn't playing by your rules, saying they're better than you, but you know if they were playing by your rules, they wouldn't be any better. Well, heck, you know, I mean, most, you know, you take, you take these hotshot climbers out of the gym now, and you hand them the rack Royal Robbins had when he did Nutcracker and the shoes and the rope and everything. And, and, you know, without that thing ever having been climbed and all lichen and dirt and everything on it and see if they can climb it. Probably not, you know? I mean, every time I climbed, you know, like I climbed with Chenard once and the guy hardly climbed anymore. And we were in the Tetons and he's running it out like crazy on these five, 10 pitches, putting in like one or two hexes. I was going like, holy Damn, dude, you're crazy. Man. But I'm also going, you're an amazing climber. And yeah, yeah. I don't care if I've climbed stuff of a much higher number than what you ever climbed. I recognize that you're doing something that if I try to climb the same style as you, you're just as good at. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. And the reason you were a famous climber is because you were really damn good. And you know, and I don't think you know, I don't think too many people get that opportunity. I've been I've been super fortunate to climb with a lot of the best climbers out there, you know, from my era and sometimes from the era before. And uh, and yeah, you know, they earned their reputations because they know how to climb. They only climb five twelve because they were climbing in the seventies or something like that or eighties. Does doesn't mean that the person climbing five fourteen now is actually a better climber than them. No, it's true. And I, I think there's this like there's this thing that's impossible. There's like no exchange rate between um, the difficulties in that kind of Royal Robbins ascent versus a lot of the times where in the modern era, at least when I feel like when dangerous climbs are put up, it's like you're you get incredibly strong and then you work the route and you climb maybe a dangerous pitch, but you, you've sort of uh, maybe not rehearsed it, but you at least like gotten yourself to a level of mastery that you're confident that you can do that pitch and, and all that sort of thing. Whereas like the day, the, the ground up uh, yeah. uh, approach to a dangerous pitch is, is not, that's not very common these days. Oh God, no, no, that, that has been lost. And, and that, if I rude anything, leaving the sport, that would probably be it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because, um, you know, like I, I was just at Waco and, and you, know, uh, you know, walking up on top of North Mountain and having to, you know, negotiate a mountain of fucking crash pads under Sea Spot Run. Mm. <laughs> yeah. People just go like, you know what? Hey, you want you want to feel like how it was back in the day? Go up to it with no chalk on it and no pads and have fun. Yeah. You know, and, you know, I think that. You know, granted, I was never, uh, you know, I did my share of free soloing. We all did back in the day because it was something that was expected of you. But pretty quickly you realized that, okay, you're not John Backer. Mm-hmm. You're not Peter Croft or Derek Kersey, you know. Um, so <laughs> you start dialing it back a, a bit. But um, but that's something that I don't see being done now is taking everything you've learned through a uh, – you know, a lifetime of climbing or however long your career is, you know, and finding a climb that you've never done before, never tried before, never watched anybody do before, 
And you start up on it, no rope, no nothing, with the knowledge that if you fall, you will end up in a hospital or dead. You will never climb again. And putting all your climbing skills to the test in that manner. And I feel that is disappearing. Because even as, I mean, even as remarkable as Alex Honnold selling El Cap, and hats off to him, man, that's freaking remarkable. Right. But, you know, he worked the hell out of that mm-hmm. before he did. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I got to say, I'm a little disappointed he didn't start from the sit down and, yeah. <laughs> the free rider <laughs> sit down direct. <laughs> kind of validated the whole thing that way. But, you know, but it still, you know, it just blows me away. You know, that's, I got to say, that's still really bold. Oh, it's, I mean, that's crazy bold for sure. That's, I yeah. mean, he's a generation, that's, you know, generation yeah. defining athlete. But um, at the same time, you know, you make a good point. That's, that time. is, yeah. that's, what, that typifies what, what, the style of dangerous climbing as it exists today, which is to say that you, you know, you, you really, you're pushing a different boundary is maybe the best well, way. Okay. To but, but, but here's the, here's the flip side of that. And, and this is where, okay. Yeah. I made fun of Alex on the Sit down. No, but. In reality, I am more impressed by what he's done, say, in Patagonia, where he has, you know, minimal experience, and he goes does the Fitzroy Traverse with Tommy Caldwell and stuff, and they're going out there uh, a lot of times on on terrain they've never been on before, with a minimum of gear, a maximum of commitment. That is incredible, and I'm glad to see that they're doing that because yeah. that the link from this generation to the generations before and i hope we never lose that and i hope that you know there's more of that going on less you know yeah i mean you know the whole dawn wall thing that was a seven uh a seven year sport climbing project you know and uh the uh free rider solo that was you know a media extravaganza work to death Impressive as hell, but at the same time, I feel that the the bigger challenges that are out there where you go into the unknown, but trusting in your skill is going to be where it's at. Yeah. Maybe that's just me, you know, sour grapes because of the way I highballed back in the day because I didn't have pads and I was doing first ascents highball and I wasn't inspecting them. It was like... Yeah, I wasn't risking my life, but I was risking breaking my legs and going to the hospital a lot of times. Um, you know, and that's not how people highball it. They call it highballing, but I don't know. It's not highballing. If it's highballing, if you fall, you should not be able to climb for the rest of the season. You know, at least six weeks or whatever, you should at least be on crutches for a few weeks if you fall highballing. That's how it was back in the day. That was the definition of a highball. If you fell and you could get back up and try it again that day, you're not highballing. Yeah. You can't be like getting good gear in and calling it A5 when you're at the top of the pitch. Almost by definition, it's just not, that's just not the way it is. Yeah. 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 Well, I, you know, I think the Fitzroy thing you make, that's a great point, right? Like the, that sort of ethic of commitment and, and minimalism and style is, I think that is very alive in the world of alpinism. So that's, that's an aside. I guess I, I, I I was thinking about rock climbing when I was making my earlier comments, but you know, alpinists, there are a lot of very cutting edge alpinists, even by the standards you were describing. And the alpine conditions change all the time. 
Yeah. So yeah, you you get thrown curveballs all the time, and you have to respond to it. And today's alpinists uh, doing amazing stuff. Yeah. Um, no, but I agree. in the world of rock climbing, where you were taking the example of head pointing, where you know people are finally taking, you know, they they rehearse something, they take the rope away and add that bit of risk to it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's adding a bit of risk, but not as much risk as you would. If you went there, it's not the test of you and your skills against the unknown. Yeah. It's a test of you and your skills against the very well known. And there's a big difference. Yeah. It, I mean, it's a different, it's yeah. a different challenge. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's impressive, like you said, and it's challenging, but I, I think it is substantively different. Well, the problem is the media doesn't want to make a distinction. Yeah. And that's been a problem with a lot of things in climbing. It's like, okay. Um, Track climbing pretty much got killed by the media because all of, you know at first they were starting to give credit you know free that you know if somebody freed a pitch but they hang dog on it and and they said that they freed it the magazine said well this sounds good it'll sell issues we're gonna print that story whereas everybody else is going they didn't free it they were hanging on a rope working a moves on because the definition of free climbing was you. If you fell, the rope was only there to keep you from dying and, and, and lower you back to the ground so you could try it again. Mm-hmm. And when people change that definition, instead of the media changing their definition or terminology, shall we say, say, okay, free climbing is when you do it and the rope's just there to catch you if you fall. Mm-hmm. dogging, or they could come up with a you know a nicer sounding name for it, you know, the first sport climbing sense. You know, you could have the first free ascent and the first sport climb ascent. But all of a sudden, the first sport climb ascent becomes the first free ascent. So it's easier to do the first free ascent if you're hangdogging, and that takes away from the person who wants to do it in ground-up style. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and if they just said they're doing something different and that it's apples and oranges, not apples and apples, then there's no problem. You know, if it was apples and apples, you could compare yourself with Royal Robbins. You know, you, you wear the same gear, the same non-sticky rubber boots, stiff sole, things that don't bend at all, with big lug soles and, and a rack of pitons or or maybe just the earliest hexes and, and stuff because you didn't have cams, you know. Yeah. Um, you do that, you know. It's like the first time I did the nose, I had, we had four cams between us. <laughs> oh, man. Well, so... One thing that I was actually really curious to to hear you talk about is the um, photography that you spent a lot of time on in the last few years. Is that something that you were into when you were a climber, or is it something that you've adopted later in life? The photography was always there. I took you know lots of photos and wrote articles for the climbing magazines. The most photography I did was climbing base, and after a while, it became it felt like oh, if I have my camera with me, I'm working. And I didn't want that feeling all the time. So I started leaving the camera behind and, you know, I I drifted in and out of it. Never, you know, made more than part-time cash out of uh, photography. And, uh, but then, uh, about eight years ago, I met Don Kish, uh, who is an outstanding photographer and a talented climber here in, Flagstaff through a mutual bouldering friend of ours. And, um, you know, about a year later we started dating and now I'm living with her. <laughs> right on. And, uh, 
Talk about winning the dirtbag lottery. <laughs> yeah, I've been living in a van since 1985, and then I, then I meet this beautiful, talented, athletic gal who has a house. <laughs> that might be nothing short of a miracle. I'm not a I'm not a good photographer or a knowledgeable one myself, but I I know enough to know how much I don't know, and it it seems to bear at least a passing resemblance to climbing in in the way that there's just a lifetime to to learn like you're never going to know it all and, oh exactly but in climbing especially when you're my age which i hate to reveal but it's 58 oh <laughs> fuck me never thought i'd get here <laughs> uh, it's okay the microphone uh loses 10 years you know Okay. <laughs> you can't see the grades in that. Yeah, exactly. But uh, I can always get better. What, yeah. what are you drinking? Uh, this Sorry. this huh? is this is a Coors Heavy. Coors Heavy. Uh, I'm I live in Golden. You know. Well, go down to Golden Brewery and get some of their stout. It's pretty good. It's you really good. For that. No, it's really really good. <laughs> Where were we? Photography. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we were talking about the complexities of both photography and climbing being good for like a lifetime of study. Oh, yeah, exactly. Okay, so when it comes to a lifetime in photography versus lifetime in climbing, you know, at my age in climbing, I can only look forward to getting weaker. Yeah. You know? yeah. It's, it, it, it's pretty much a just a physiological fact, you know, I mean, you know, uh, you just can't compete, you know, with the younger people at that age. Now climbing, fortunately experience counts for a fair bit, but yeah, there's no way I can compete with these 20 year olds. Right. But that's not, that's not it. You know, I compete with myself and I'm, you know, trying to go back do my old man lightning project and stuff. But as we get back to photography, the one thing I can do is I can always get better until the day I die at photography. Right. It's just a brilliant thing about that. But then the other thing that I found that was very interesting and particularly because I, I do a lot of wildlife, but I especially like photographing birds. And I think the reason is, is because birds are like boulders to some extent. In boulders, at least when I started climbing, boulders were very underappreciated. Mm. They're everywhere. You go in Yosemite Valley and you just like, you look and there's boulders strewn all over the place. And then you look up at El Cap and go, oh my God, that must be amazing to climb that. You know? And you yeah. don't realize that, you know, there's a hundred times more people who have climbed El Cap than have climbed Midnight Lightning. And Midnight Lightning's right in the middle of the climber's camp, but it's just on this little boulder. Yeah. You know? So it's, uh, you know, birds are like that. You know, if, if people see these grand landscape photos, you know, Ansel Adams style photos and stuff, and then you see a bird photo. Well, I see birds all the day, every day, every day I see birds, you know, what, what's the big deal about getting a photo of them? But, uh, it's, it's, it's like bouldering. It's so difficult to get a bird photo. It's like doing a boulder problem. Yeah. It's underappreciated. The amount of effort that goes into it is way more than anybody would ever imagine. But for me, there's this parallel to where the reward feels the same, which ended up getting me in terrible shape because I was, <laughs> I was missing from bouldering. I was getting it from photographing wildlife, yeah. particularly birds. And I, uh, You know, I think with your 
analogy from bouldering to bird photography, there's this other really good parallel, which is that you sort of have to you have to play each game in like the away stadium, if that makes sense. Like for bouldering, like you have, like you mentioned earlier, it's the problem has not been set for you by people. It's the boulder just exists and you mm-hmm. have to show up and play on the boulders court. And likewise with the birds, like you're not taking, you're not doing a photo shoot with like another person or a still life object where you can just manipulate it and set it up and conform it to the shot. <laughs> right. So she doesn't even show up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, you have to, you're playing their game. You know, in the same way that you're playing the boulders game when you show up and climb on actual rock as opposed to like a preset route. Yeah. Well, the great thing about that, though, is that when you spend those hours and hours outdoor, like you might be, you know, crouched down in, uh, you know, in a marsh somewhere hiding in the reeds or something and hoping some bird shows up. But you get so in touch with your surroundings. Why, speaking of birds and photography, why condors? Um, that was another uh, job I went on with Dawn. She was photographing the, doing a portrait of the uh, uh, manager of the condor recovery project here in northern Arizona. And at that point, I was already hooked on birds, but I, I'd never seen a condor in a while before, and I was super excited to go up there and assist her on her photo shoot, but uh, you know, hoping I'd get a little time off to take some photos of some condors. And during that whole thing, we went up, uh, and there was uh, they were testing the condors for lead poisoning, and they would trap the condors in, in this uh, big aviary, and pull them out and, you know, pull blood out of them and test the blood and see what their lead levels were. And if the lead levels were too high, they would take the condor and, and take it down to a treatment facility. And there's only 450 of these birds in the world, about half of those in the wild, a little more than half in the wild. And uh, so, you know, if we lose a single one of those, and not, not all of them are breeding, of breeding age, but you lose, lose a single one of them of breeding age, you're, you're losing more than a percent of the genetic diversity of the, of the species as a whole, you know? I mean, yeah. it's a big, big deal, you know? I mean, you, you go to a slideshow at the climbing gym, there might be more people in there than there are condors in the world, the entire world. So I'm up there, and... The, the biologists were shorthanded and they were had to switch out the transmitter on, on one of the condor's wings. And so they, I got to hold this condor while they did that. And it was so unbelievably warm. Man. And, you know, what, much warmer than a dog in your lap. Was it a scary and, experience? Uh, and, and, oh, yeah. This, and the, the strength of its heartbeat was amazing. And at that point, it was all over. I had to do everything I could to save these birds. Yeah. Just like... Yeah, it was. It, it just touched me. I was going, like, "Oh my God, I've got this." That connection was something else. And then the interesting thing about the condors is because there's so few of them, and, and so I've I made it a goal to try and photograph every member of the population in Arizona and Utah. Well, that's awesome. And, uh, of which, you know, when I made that my goal, there was you know, between about seventy two, seventy five, and you don't know which ones are alive and some are missing, you know, feared dead. Um, but, uh, how do you, how do you tell the difference between them? They all have tags on them. Okay. Because, 
Uh, a lot of them are bred in captivity, so they'll have a tag before they're released. Gotcha. The ones that are born in the wild eventually come in and get captured to be tested for lead poisoning. And at that point, they'll put a tag on them. Yeah. But then it got me to realize, and, and this was a real revelation for me, and hopefully for the, the listeners, is um, you know when you're out there and you're spending this time and you're trying to meet all the ones in this population, you pay a lot of attention to the wing tags. And then after a while, some of them, you don't even need to look at the tag. You know who it is by how they act. You know, one of them, all his wings are you know a little more bent than this other one's. Oh, this one, when it gets to... The carcass, it's going to shove the other ones off, um, you know, on and on. Yeah. And you start to appreciate them as individuals, just like you would your dog or cat. You know, everybody right. thinks, oh, well, my dog's different than the neighbor's dog. Of course, my dog's better. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or, you know, we readily attribute individual personalities to our pets. Yes. But you go outside and you see a raven. It's a raven and another raven and another raven. You don't, you don't think of them as individuals at all. And it taught me that no, every animal out there is an individual. Because I don't think condors, you can't tell a male from a female. You can tell an adult from a juvenile, but you know, other than that, you can't tell them apart. You wouldn't be able to tell them apart unless they had the wing tags. Mm. Until you spend enough time seeing one with a wing tag and knowing that Oh, of course that's 722 wing banging on a bridge when it's too old to be doing that because 722s <laughs> may be a little touched, you know, and on and on. And, you know, it just, and then it gets really emotional when one of them dies, you yeah. know, because you know that where you hung out with it. Yeah, it's, you know, there's a real like, and that's true. So, you know, so far beyond even just birds, right. That the, the layer, the texture that you get from that familiarity, right. I remember when, um, I guess to make a climbing analogy, the first time somebody brought me to Indian Creek as like a, you know, beginner ish climber, I remember driving around down the one road that goes through the Canyon. And he was like, this is this wall, you know, like this is Scarface, this is cat wall, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, how in God's name are you able to tell these walls apart? They all look exactly <laughs> the same, you know? And, you know, now that I've been there however many times, it's like I, I am that person, right? I can – I do that to people who have never been there. And I'm sure they're sitting in the passenger seat like, who the fuck is this loser? <laughs> but, yeah, I mean I imagine it's exactly the same way with the birds, you know? It's like a, it's a vantage point that, that not many people really get. Like you have to earn that, you know? Yeah, but I think it's more important that we – recognize individuality in animals yes. than in climbs. Yes, agreed. Um, because our impacts on the planet and stuff directly impact them. You know, hey, if the planet, you know, increases temperature by a bunch, super crack's still gonna be there. Yes. Maybe less people are gonna climb it because it's greasier, but it's not going anywhere. But a lot of the species around the base and on top of the cliff and all throughout, you know, uh, that part of Utah and Bears Ears or what was Bears Ears, they're going to be, you know, uh, negatively affected. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and, uh, and like I say, yeah, the more time I spend with wildlife, the less time I want to spend with humans yes. because I, I, I look at humans as like the lowest life form on the earth, perhaps. I mean, we are ones that are, 
you know, our greed exceeds that of any other species. And because it does, we are, you know, we can't even control our own greed to save ourselves. And, and greed is that flaw put into humanity that's going to be the end of our species. But I'm a geologist by trade. I can just look at it and just go like, oh, we'll be a great index fossil someday. Yep. And, Absolutely. Uh, you know, the planet will go on no matter how many species we wipe out. Right. We'll wipe ourselves out too along with it. And then the planet can start fresh. And maybe that's the way it's meant to be. You know, yep. not, we shouldn't try to save the planet and ourselves with it. I mean, it come, goes hand in hand. You know, you don't... <laughs> You, you don't have to be a kindergarten graduate to figure that out. Yeah, but, there's a, there's a real vanity I think in the in the assumption that um, either he, we think of ourselves as being like the end of the evolutionary road rather than just like a random signpost, and then you know sim- similarly like you know we think of our we think of it as being inevitable that we will graduate beyond earth to live amongst the stars because we are like capital H humanity. Right. But I, I think you're right. I mean, I think this is the every chance that, you know, we're just too smart for our own good and not mature enough for what we're capable of. And you know, the, the earth may live long, long, long after we're not here anymore. Yeah. Yeah. No, sure. look at the fossil record. <laughs> so we'll be there. <laughs> yep. That's true. It's true for better or worse. Yeah. The sharks will still be around. We'll be gone. So cockroaches, you know, with the photography world, you know, you're obviously that's that's a, a world that you you know you participate in. You have a, a website with your portfolio up, and you know, and that kind of thing. I was really my familiarity or my knowledge of 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 your work has really been as a climber, and I am so curious if you are received the same way in the like the photography world which i imagine maybe incorrectly to be like much drier and less irreverent than climbing i mean are you are you firm oh, I, I try to put a reverence into it <laughs> oh i'm sure you do <laughs> that's the, but, but i don't think many people do and i think a lot of people take it quite seriously yes. um and once again we're just you know we're 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 just climbing a boulder or we're just making a picture. I mean, come on. Yeah. But then again, you know, I can say that there's pictures out there that have done a lot more to change, you know, how we view the world than any boulder problem ever has. Mm-hmm. You know, Dorothea Lang's migrant mother, you know, oh, the Dust Bowl is horrible. You know, <laughs> you know what's going on? Or Margaret Burke White, you know, uh, yeah. prisoners at Buchenwald. You know, yes, the Holocaust is real. Um, yeah. You know, you, uh, you know, just on and on, you know, I mean, photojournalism, but now, but nowadays, yeah, I mean, everything's called into question, you know, they would, they would have back in the day, you know, they would have called that fake news. So if, if they had had that coined back at the time, anybody who wanted to deny that the Dust Bowl was happening or that, you know, the World War II was happening mm-hmm. <laughs> and whatnot. And, uh, it's, uh, yeah, no, the, the photography, I, I guess I what, feel it's losing, I feel it's losing its power because of the changes and the sure. internet and being a photographer and Photoshop and like that. Now. And of course, because Photoshop, you can't trust what you see. And, uh, you know, it was at one time called the unimpeachable witness. 
but I haven't heard that term used for a long time. No, totally. No. Unreliable witness, maybe at this point. Are you? But you know, are you? I guess more narrowly, are you? Do you have like the same um, avatar and persona in in the photography world? Like, do the other photographers think of you as like the Sherman the Vermin type? person that we climbers know you as or are you uh, more staid in that world there's crossover there and that there's climbers who are photographers and photographers who are climbers and stuff like that so some people know me as both yeah sure um but no i i am you know i've i have not you know touched the photography world like i did the climbing world i mean i did yeah, i've not developed you know, I have not put like Quaco tanks on the map in the photography world. Right. You know? Totally. <laughs> you know, the, you know, being in the right place at the right time down in West Texas back in the day with this incredible boulder field at my disposal and, you know, doing my thing there and then being friends with people in the climbing media and writing articles and stuff like that, that changed a lot of things in the sport. It was never my intention to do that, and maybe that's why I, I did do that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Whereas in photography, I would love to change things. I would love to change how people feel about uh, condors and endangered species. I mean, especially condors, because uh, goodness, you know, National Geographic just called vultures ugly and disgusting in their "You're the bird." beginning thing, you know, the, the, the beginning essay to a whole year worth of celebrating birds and they pick out vultures as being ugly and disgusting. And then the rest of the rest of the magazine talks about, you know, humans running billion dollar drug cartels and people <laughs> being raped to death and, and, uh, you know, uh, mass murders and, and, you know, Las Vegas, uh, shooting sprees and, on and on and on. I'm going, who's ugly and disgusting here? Is it the condor that cleans up after our mess? Yeah. Or is it yeah. us? You yeah. know? So Yeah, very shallow definition of ugly and disgusting. I, I, wish, I, I wish my photos could, I wish my photos got out there more. Yeah. You know, nobody's calling me up from a, a photo website asking to interview me now. You are, <laughs> Fair because, enough. Yeah, totally. Because I'm a, no, a notorious climber because, you know, and frankly, I'm a far better climber than I am a photographer. Yeah. Um, Although to be I fair, be a photographer too. Uh, but as far as being a successful photographer, being good and being successful are two different things in photography. Yes. You know, um, and they are in climbing too. To I some agree. Extent, you know, I totally I mean, agree. There, there, there are some incredibly talented self promoters in climbing who aren't that good climbers, but they get a lot of press mm -hmm. because they're great at you know blowing their own horn, mm -hmm. just as there are in photography. Sure. And there's a, you know, a lot of undiscovered talent in the climbing world and in the photo world that they're just not good at self-promotion. And, you know, I ran into the right people at the right time. You know, I had friends who lived in Aspen when Climbing Magazine was based out of there. And, you know, I met Michael Kennedy and I, uh, my, my break into climbing journalism was there was a new guidebook book to Tanks out. Nobody on the staff had ever been down there. But they knew I had. They handed it to me to do a, a review of. Mm. Uh, and I did two versions. 
one that was really straight. This book has 78 pages and shorter lines <laughs> in it. And like very documentarian review. East West or whatever, left to right across the crags. I don't know. You know, it was like the rest of their reviews. I wrote one like they liked it, and then I wrote one like I liked it. You know, that ended with saying, hey, everybody buy this book so that the author can get that that uh, surgery he so desperately needs, which is Mike Head. He's got a intense dipple in his chin. I thought he needed the butthole removed from his chin. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, but, you know, uh, but I just yuck, yucked it up with my other one. And Kennedy loved the one where I was having fun with it. And then I, and after that, you know, just, you know, I had my break. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing fell into place after another, after another, you know, the, it was like, okay, we like this guy's sense of humor. You know, what, what do you want to write about next? And, uh, and it went from there. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, that hasn't happened for me in photography yet. I mean, I, sure. I write for, uh, photography life, you know, a few times a year, just, you know, kind of reviewing gear, but, you know, trying to have fun with it and stuff like that. And, uh, and, you know, uh, here in Arizona, I'm super proud to be featured in Arizona highways, yeah. um, which is a magazine that, you know, I knew as a kid, you know, back in high school, I knew what Arizona Highways was. It was like one of the top places for a photographer to be seen if they were a landscape photographer, you know. And I wanted to be like, you know, the, uh, you know, like I said, you know, like an Ansel Adams or something like that when I was a kid. Well, uh, you know, this uh, famous landscape photographer. Now, I, now I'm more drawn toward the wildlife. It, it's kind of more my temperament that. Um, that's what I like. I still like shooting landscapes, but but you know, I found that I've, I've sold I've sold a lot of wildlife photos to Arizona Highways. I've never sold them a landscape photo. Damn it! Yeah. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> I still haven't achieved my goal from the seventies. Uh, no. <laughs> someday, someday, Jeff Kidda, are you listening? Look at my landscapes. Yes, exactly. They don't suck anymore. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Although I think you know, by switching to wildlife, you might have just moved the goalposts on yourself a little bit there. Um, but you know, to, to your point about being recognized as a climber more than a photographer, I mean, you know, for, for what it is worth, the reason that I wanted to reach out to you so soon in, in this, uh, string of, of episodes is, is because of your photography actually, and more specifically because of your, um, the, the naturalist and preservationist bent to your photography, um, with condors. I think that's something that's, you know, the, the people who I admire the most in climbing are, interesting beyond their climbs and they're passionate about about things that they give back to the sport but also you know just to the world more largely you know i think that that's something that's always been one of the prouder traditions of the sport you know preservation and you know we should treat nature with respect and and da 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 and you know i think you have doubled down on that more so than most people by focusing on a photographic project that really has that um you know that that intended outcome so well, consider this your client, your photo recognition. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, yeah, I'd say about that, that uh, if I can use my climbing celebrity and leverage that yeah. to get my conservation message through, then I want to do that. Yeah, see, because exactly. And I, I think that more than all your first ascents and the V grade system and stuff like that, I think that that is what makes you a great climber rather than, you know, anything, anything that you actually climbed. Um, well, yeah, because... You know, like I say, you know, I, I've made a pathetic amount of money off of climbing through, you know, the 45 years I've been doing it or whatever it's been now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, I, I'm sure, you know, uh, Alex, you know, 
With Adam Under, I'm sure he wins more in one weekend than I've made in my entire career. Sure. So, uh, but if people, you know, watch my old man lightning film that we're working on now because, uh, you know, they are interested in climbing or interested in midnight lightning or are fans of my writing or something like that, you know, if they go ahead and watch that and then they get exposed to the conservation message in that, and I'm not trying to turn people off of the film. It's funny, the conservation message. Yeah. It's not as funny as the adult diaper ad, but anyways. <laughs> but the uh, oldmanlightning.com, you can find a teaser there. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have been like very anxious to a- ask you about that, but I will say for anybody listening, the trailer for this movie looks fucking ridiculous. I mean, it looks amazing. Um, why is that? So you mentioned that um, you know you're sort of on the sidelines at the moment. Is that is that an active project? Like, is that movie still still coming forward? Oh, absolutely. Nice. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I I just uh, rode. Whew, about 24 miles on a stationary bike today. I'm 12 weeks out of uh, surgery to reattach my subscapularis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was in PT yesterday and I'll be in PT tomorrow. Um, I'm actually at a, you know, that that's nothing compared to what it'll be in a couple of months when they okay me to work out three or four hours a day, six days a week or whatever I was doing before to, getting to get strong enough that I could tear my subscapularis off. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> On the lightning. And yeah. so, uh, anyway, um, yeah, no, that, that project is alive and well. Good. It's taking us longer than we thought. Yeah, they all uh, do. You, know, you, you get to be my age and you know, your tendons are no longer those nice pliable licorice whips. They turn into candy canes and <laughs> explode when you put the wrong stress on them. So, uh, yeah. yeah. That's awesome, man. I, I cannot, do you have any sense of like when that's, uh, you know, like what, I guess how much more runway there is for that project or yeah, like, I, I don't want to you know, make any promises cause we don't know, you know yeah. what's going to happen. And, and I, you know, I can't make any guarantees how my body is going to hold up any more than I can say this bird is going to be on this ledge at this time. Fair enough. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, flawed question, I suppose, but, 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 uh, in, in an ideal world, uh, I would be able to get back on the problem this winter sometime. Oh, that's great, man. Now. Yeah. Two winters ago, it rained for straight for four and a half months or so. Yeah. And that problem was wet the entire time. Icicles hanging off the lips, no yeah. pouring yeah. into the base, you know, and you couldn't even get on it. And, uh, Maybe I would have done it back then if I had had a window and all of that weather, but yeah, who knows? It is what it is, and it makes uh, you know a more intriguing story. You know, how long will I persevere trying to do something I said I would do? Because I'm not one who likes to quit when I say I want to do something. I want to do it, and I don't want to quit until I do it. But you know, when you see the years of your life ticking by and you realize you just spent 10% of your remaining life expectancy trying to do something you've already done. Yes. Sometimes you start questioning your sanity. Yeah. That's, so. I mean, that's fair. <laughs> right. Um, you know, there's you know, some, even more of my remaining life expectancy trying to get back there. Yeah. But you know, I keep telling myself, well, you know, even if I don't do it, if it, if it, you know, helps out the cause to get people to, 
uh, you know, look further into, you know, condors or their own favorite endangered species or, uh, you know, think outside of climbing for a little bit uh, as to what else is important to them in the world and that would be a good thing. Well, what yeah. do you what what would you say to because I think that you know conservation broadly is something that a lot of climbers would agree with, but you know what would you say to climbers who actually do care about this issue or newly care about this issue, um, but may want to move the needle in a meaningful way? Like, where would you direct people to go? About condors, yeah. Well, about condors, yeah. I would say go. Uh, Go get your checkbook out and write a check to the Condor Recovery Fund and send it to the Peregrine Fund. Or when you make your donation that you want it to go to the Condors. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, thanks again for taking the time, man. I, uh, I, can't, I can't thank you enough. This, is, this has been great. Okay. All right. Thanks, John. Cool, it was a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to catch next week's episode as soon as it's out. And if you like the show and you want to help us out, just find us on iTunes and give us a rating. Have an awesome week.